Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. We're still not using technology the way we should, you know, and, and we debate. We debate if somebody is an addict. You know, it's like if somebody was having a heart attack, we'd be like, I don't think that's what's going on right now. And I think, you know, what I think is we should do this. What I think is we let's just watch it. You know, we would never do that. You know, if someone had diabetes, we would we would do the diagnostics. We would any other disease. We would do the diagnostics first, get objective biomarkers, get information and then move on from there in the mental health area, which includes addiction. We still just want to talk about it and admire the problem. And I think we'll do this. Well, I think we'll do that. (laughs) It's bizarre. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. And today we have an expert episode, Dr. Evelyn Higgins. Dr. Higgins is the founder of Wired for Addiction and is a recognized international expert in the science of addiction recovery. As a certified addictionologist, diplomate of the American Board of Disability Analysts, specializing in pain management, and diplomate of the American College of Addictionology and Compulsive Disorders, Dr. Higgins has had the honor of advising the U.S. Surgeon General, producing and hosting a Gracie Award-winning, nationally syndicated health and wellness radio program, and serving as a 1996 Olympic team doctor and Olympic torch bearer. With 35 years in practice, Dr. Higgins has specialized in the clinical application of the neuroscience and epigenetics behind mental health complexities. Dr. Higgins is also a 2022 TEDx speaker, 2021 nominee for Modern Healthcare's Top 25 Innovators in Healthcare, and frequent national media healthcare commentator. Dr. Higgins is at the nexus of epigenetics, neuroscience, and health. Friends, family, folks, followers, anything else F-word, you are going to love this episode. What an amazing woman Dr. Higgins is. And she is spearheading the movement into precision medicine in addiction. We can find the group of addiction genes and hopefully help people identify physiological ways that they can improve their recovery or even start their recovery. We talk a lot about epigenetics in this episode, but we did not define it. So I'm going to define it for you here. Epigenetics is the study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. Unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible and do not change your DNA sequence, but they can change how your body reads a DNA sequence. So in my world of analogies, we all have a radio and we all play different songs on that radio. If you have an addiction song on your radio, you will always have that addiction song on your radio, but your environment will turn that up or down. So if you have addiction song on your radio and you have a lot of trauma, that will turn up the sound on that song. But it's reversible and also it might never express itself if you don't have those environmental triggers. So epigenetics are the things that turn on and off or turn up and down our genetic biomarkers. Hope that's helpful. Please check out Dr. Higgins' TED Talk. Check out her company, Wired for Addiction, where you can order these tests. It's absolutely incredible. Let's support her. 
And I hope you enjoy this amazing conversation. Without further ado, I give you Dr. Evelyn Higgins. Let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here. Really, oh, really pleasure. appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure for sure. Looking forward to this. Was uh, was it fun doing the TED Talk? Yeah, yeah. It was. It was actually much more work than I thought it would be. You know, because they have their. They want it to be of a certain, you know, grade. And I get that because it's their brand. So it's, you know, every week we were meeting and that was a lot. And then every two weeks meeting as the entire group and then, you know, going there two days before and, you know, doing it. But wonderful experience. It made me get this out of me. So I'm grateful for that. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. What I had intended was nothing like what it ended up like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, it's all good. Well, it was funny because when I when I watched your TED talk, what I heard was the simplification and the storytelling of incredible science. And what what I heard was, oh, my gosh, she has so much science stored up inside of her. And they just made her make this into a story, which I appreciate. That was it. That, I you, appreciate you nailed it. I heard that. I appreciate that. But for me personally, as a as a science nerd, I was you like, wanted the science. I yep. wanted, yeah. When you said polymorphism, I don't want your. I was like, no, give me all the polymorphism. See, and and we we fought over that word because they wanted me to take it out. And I'm like, guys, I have made such incredibly complex science so simple in seven minutes that I have to use this word. And I'll make a joke about it. Like I'm only going to do one word like this. I said, but I have to, or else. I am deluding to the point of why bother. I actually think what you did was perfect because it signaled to the people who don't know anything about it what the information could be and if they were more curious and it sort of removed some of these barriers. And then for for people like me who know about that piece, but were really interested in the genetic components and could hear the underlying piece, I was like, oh, I have to learn more about what she's doing because there's obviously some stuff she's doing that's that's really important. And turns out that, that there is. There's some incredible stuff you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I had started out with kind of like uh, some statistics and, you know, it's like, oh, let's compare it to COVID with, with mental health. And they're like, eh, get rid of it. And I'm like, whoa, like, don't you have anything personal? I'm like, ooh, okay. I need to talk to my daughter before I do this because it's not just my story. It's my story and my daughter's story. If we have the green light, I'll consider it. I'm like, but I don't think I would have ever signed up for this. I just wasn't ready to go there. What did you know? that feel like? You know, in the rehearsal part of it, it was hard. Once I got there, I'm like, let's go. Really, every podcast or interview I've done since is like, do you mind if we go? I'm like, no, let's go. You know, it's let's go because that I think is really what has helped so many people. 
it's like, wait a minute, you know this stuff and even you were there. Exactly, exactly. And and one of the things that I talk about with, with families and parents all the time is it's not reasonable that you would know how to handle any of this because it's not intuitive. It's not taught. It's not even talked about. Right, right. <laughs> exactly, know? exactly. And it defies logic. Right. And 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 this is getting into some of the questions I have, which for the listeners who don't know, you um, had a husband who was part of the community who struggles with substance use disorder and and you guys had a child together. You know, in a lot of your talks, you talked you you hit on some of the the main topics we talk about. We talk about stigma, we talk about disease concept, we talk about free will, and we talk about, you know, genetic precursors. One of the things I always talk about, and I'll go into the moral piece first, which is we say a lot of the time it's not a moral flaw a moral failing, but it does cause a lot of moral failing behavior. And I think one of the issues with stigma is that we don't address that we're total assholes when we're in the disease. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when you talk about it's not a moral flaw, but it causes you to make morally questionable decisions, what what is your experience as a as a wife, as a mother, as a scientist? How do you look at something that isn't a moral flaw, but it causes moral failings? Sure. That's a great, that's a great question because we're all human, right? And did I like that behavior? No. Was I upset, angry? Absolutely. You know, so there's this, it's kind of like the balance beam. It's like, you know, yeah, this does not feel good to be on this end of it. And if it continues, I'm out of here. And the other part of it is, okay, understanding, we've also got to look at what got you here and start to unpack that. And that means the biopsychosocial, right? That means all of it from your physiology, your unique physiology to the psychosocial part of your life. If you're willing to do that, we'll keep on. If you're not, that's where we have to make a decision. Okay, so to restate what you are saying is that the belief that it's not a moral failing to begin with is the reason why you're willing to work on it if they're willing? Yes, yeah. That love, we've all been there. We all, some of us still are there. And you're like, love can conquer all. You know, we have that emotional piece to us. And then we step outside of that emotional piece and say, time out. We can't just go around with blinders on, you know, and then we brought a child into the world. So to have the next generation continue this would be shame on me as a parent. And that's where it was a game changer for me. It was like, this is not going to continue because I am now responsible for another life. Right. And and they're they're paying attention. And if genetics are loading the gun, right. Is we need to know that. Yeah. 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 We need to know that. That's a piece that we can't avoid. It's something that I heard in your story, you know, again, for the listeners who don't know, you were working really, really hard and and your your I believe it was your forties, you had two strokes as a result of genetics and working too much. Right. Um, right. Or some combination of those things. And we see a lot in partners who choose people who have who love us who love addicts right right right, right. <laughs> um, that they have certain qualities that are similar to one another and one of them is this desire to caretake beyond what is personally manageable, meaning that they will hurt themselves in the process of taking care of others. Correct. Is that something that shows up in the genetics as well? Oh, that's a good question. I couldn't say yes or no on that part of it. 
that caretaking, I, I, I couldn't definitively say yes, but certainly where there are some predispositions to weakness for something in a negative end result, I could say yes to that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a great point that you bring up. I had someone say it and that really resonated with me. He said, you know, it's like when we meet that person and we call it chemistry and the energy is just like, oh my goodness, it's because you're familiar with that. Right. And, and that really on the human side of me, you know, the, the non-professional side was like, wow. Yeah. And then I think of all the guys that I dated before and after until I was like, okay, step away. <laughs> Time to step away. No um, blood tests for this one. <laughs> yeah. That it was, it, it really was because it resonates with coming home, you know, and, and that's, there's so much. That's why it's such a complex situation. And the more we learn about ourselves, the more we can start to see these pieces as we navigate life. Yeah. What makes addiction and so I'm going to group addiction, alcoholism, I, I, I kind of, it's all the same. What makes addiction a disease? In, in the mind of a scientist. Sure. Okay. So according to NIDA, addiction is a chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive behavior, which creates, despite the neg negative adverse consequences, we continue with it. So Britannica defines disease as a harmful deviation from the normal structural or functional state of an organism. Clearly, it's a disease. So do you think that there's a colloquial definition, a, a, a population definition of disease and a scientific definition of disease? That is, we know cancer, we know diabetes is a disease. We know that, you know, autoimmune disease, but that our mental health struggles or addiction that colloquially we don't see those things as a disease. Right. And I think that's because really until now, we haven't used technology in this area. And I could go on about that one, Ashley, where there's really such an inequity because we still have that stigma. And we're like, you know, these these people got themselves there. They can get themselves out. They choose this, all that kind of stuff. And we're still, despite, you know, however we want to put the ribbon on it, we're still doing that. Oh, yeah. Right. So in the area of mental health, which addiction is in that same place, we're still not using technology the way we should, you know, and, and we debate. We debate if somebody is an addict. You know, it's like if somebody was having a heart attack, we'd be like, I don't think that's what's going on right now. And I think, you know, what I think is we should do this. What I think is we let's just watch it. You know, we would never do that. You know, if someone had diabetes, we would we would do the diagnostics. We would any other disease. We would do the diagnostics first, get objective biomarkers, get information and then move on from there in the mental health area which includes addiction, we still just want to talk about it and admire the problem. And well, I think we'll do this. Well, I think we'll do that. <laughs> it's bizarre. Is there any science in this of where the line is between choice, free will, lifestyle, and genetic loss of choice? Is there, where, where do you define that line when you're looking at it with clients and patients? So if we have those particular markers, you know, we'll go over the biomarkers. Okay, we've got this. We've got a predisposition here. 
So you've got to do everything within your lifestyle knowing this. And, and that to me, that's where the power lies, Ashley. It's like armed with information. Will you make different choices knowing you don't have the wiggle room? You know, your, your buddy may be able to do the same behavior and the next day not care about it at all. You don't have that kind of wiggle room. So knowing that, be really cognizant of the choices that you make. And at the end of the day, we all do have free will. You know, that's the beauty of this being our individual life and how are we going to play it out? But that's where the power lies. You know, go back to use some other um, examples, say cancer in someone's family, cardiac disease in someone's family. We'd say, you know, hey, you know, you're going off to college now. Be careful, you know, because everybody's going to be eating crazy, you know, drinking crazy, doing all these things because mom and dad aren't telling them how to do their life anymore. You know, we've got a lot of cancer in our family. We've got a lot of cardiovascular in our family. Start thinking about lifestyle choices that you're going to make. This should be just as equal to that. Doesn't that mean that you have more impulse control? So let me let me give you an example. When I was a teenager, I, I had my first drink at seven. I wasn't like a, you know, a drinker at seven. And I had early childhood trauma and we moved a lot. And I, you know, was the classic, like I felt like my I was born with my skin on too tight. If you had tested me at 10, which is probably when I was still reason a reasonable person and said, Ashley, you have this thing, you know, it's in your genetics. I'm not sure I would have been able to make different decisions because my environment, what I had been through, all those things required a level of coping that was not provided for me. So the, the difference might have been had my parents jumped into action, knowing all the things that they know now, maybe. But when we talk about the choice, the word choice, when I think about my 10 year old self, knowing that I had a predisposition to something I didn't really understand or hadn't really seen up close, and I also needed something to get me through the world I was living in, in my childhood and all the things I'd been through, I'm not sure I could have made a different choice. I would agree with you in that 10 year old self. You didn't have the tools to know how to apply that information. You weren't ready to be there. Having that information, though, when you move through your life and you have situations arise as you get older, hopefully you bring that information back in. But I would agree with you, a 10-year-old that didn't have the toolbox that another 10-year-old have, the likelihood of them saying, you know, I need to really sit down and be careful and think about this, probably not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about how you got into this amazing science around testing for genetic biomarkers of addiction and, and, and mental health. So some 35 years ago, really when all this started professionally in a world of pain management, integrative medicine, seeing people just kind of um, not getting better, really, you know, and, and we would just have the next greatest thing. And that would be it for a while, you know, and everybody be talking about that. And there was somewhat of a dependency that I was seeing back then and some, and I was in a rural area. And then some 20 years after that, I'm in an urban area but I'm actually seeing the same thing. Try this, try that, whatever is in vogue. And I'm like, this makes no sense. And if we were getting results, I'd say, hey, let's keep on going. I, I can't figure it out, but it's working. So don't change a thing, right? 
it wasn't working. And I'm seeing people move from dependency to addiction at that point. And professionally, like, well, we're, we're doing the same thing over and over again, you know, the definition of insanity, and it didn't make sense. And then enter my personal life, where I marry a man who is an alcoholic plus other, you know, that wasn't his only addiction, and we have a child together. And now I'm starting to see this behavior. I'm like, whoa, time out. First and foremost of anything that I am, I'm a parent. Before I'm a practitioner, before anything else, I'm like, I need to know what's going on here. We find out a year after my daughter is born that he was adopted. My husband was adopted. So now we have this next layer of what's going on. And there's within adoption, there's a 43% chance of addiction and got to see that front row up close and personal and knew nothing of his health history. Zero. So now I'm like, all right, I am not going to see this into another generation. Got to start figuring out some stuff. And that 35 years before I had already, because I was in a rural area, got my CAP just to have another tool in the toolbox to help people because there were no resources then at all. And now I'm seeing we're not doing anything different. And now we're into an opioid crisis, an epidemic, and we're doing nothing different. So during this whole time, personal, professional just kept escalating of, of what I was learning learning what I was doing 17 years ago, started using the neurotransmitters, brain chemicals, their relationship to our hormones, from our stress hormones to our sex hormones, and technology had us have that part. It wasn't until tail end of 2014, beginning of 2015, the technology to look at these SNPs, these polymorphisms became available. So putting all of that together and being able to see these layers, because it's not one thing. It's the cascade of all of it together of how we wind up with the problems that we have. So it was really just layering throughout the entire process and, and technology was continuing to evolve. And that became my thing of like, my gosh, why do we not use technology in this area? We want to continue to say, well, I think, well, I think, well, I think, you know, like everybody's thinking, but we're not going anywhere. It was a pure inequity. And like, let's advance this and look at all these layers that get somebody to a disease state because it is so complex. Because just in this conversation, we're just talking about my personal. I'm like, okay, find out my husband is adopted. Whoa, okay big curveball. And that's not abnormal in this world. The adverse childhood experiences. My gosh, you probably had a 10 out of 10 score in yours, you know, from what you're telling me. So these are all the curveballs, but we have to have all that information and be willing to go to the best place of what we have available in our world today and bring it there instead of doing it like it's 1950, like it's 1960, like it's 1970 and not getting the results. So do you look at, do you take a blood, it's a blood panel? So it's a couple a different things. It's a, it's a buckle swab on the genetic portion of it. It's urine saliva on the neurotransmitter hormone part of it. There's only a couple of neurotransmitters that be, can be looked at with blood. So this is the much better, less invasive way to do it. Um, and it's really simple. You know, it, it's like a, a collection of going, getting any other type of sample. It's 48 hours prior. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. No heavy exercise, you know, blah, 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 like anything else. And what kind of information, you know, some of the thoughts I had, well, okay, so, so my, 
<laughs> my poor children. My children uh, are the products of two alcoholics, you know, recovering alcoholics and lots of other, all the mental health stuff that comes with that depression, anxiety, et cetera. Right, right. Is there any, inf- I mean, I can give them that information, say you, you are for sure have some of this. Is there information that we might not know? Is there a possibility they didn't get something from us? There's a possibility <laughs> that it, it's going to be there. It's going to be, here's your cards, play them out, right? This is they're in the cards. It's in right, the They're in the cards, but we don't necessarily see the behaviors. And that's the whole fascination of science today with epigenetics, right? That's what's so cool. That's where we can take the power back as an individual, right? But it's there's like, no question in your, it's in, in the deck. Right. It's in the deck. It's in the it's deck. In the deck. Yeah. So it's okay. What stressors do we have in our life that turn those genes on, turn those genes off? But you bring up a very interesting point before that of anxiety, depression, that kind of thing. So there's always, there's always an underlying factor. We don't realize you at seven years old clearly didn't realize you were self-medicating because it felt really good when you did that. Like, whoa, I might've found the secret sauce and it works until it doesn't work. And initially it's like, wow, I have no anxiety and you don't even know how to label that. So no one is reaching outside of themselves to bring something in unless we've got this lack of homeostasis within us, right? So anxiety, depression, addiction, risk-taking, impulse control, all of those are because of what's underlying. The addiction is whatever it is that you get the, ooh, that felt really good. It could be gambling for somebody. It could be sex for somebody. It's whatever it is that you get that, oh, that felt really good. So it's finding out what that is. That's measurable. And for your children, that's important in the beginning. It's like, okay, let's do a panel. All right, anxiety, depression. Let's let's take care of that now because I want you to experience what it's like not to feel that. So then you can compare it and you can now say, you know, your body so well of like, I think I'm going down there. Okay. Let's see what's going on. Right. And that's the power in this stuff. So in my community, my, the sober community, I see a lot of parents. Many of my friends are, are double, double alcoholic homes and recovering, but we see things, ADHD, ADD, you know, various anxiety, OCD. And one of the things I'm noticing is that people are afraid to get testing or any, you know, get to get these diagnoses because what they know about treatment is that you're going to give your kids stimulants. You're going to give your kid like they know three of the treatments, let's say, of some of these things. And so, for example, you know, I know that one of my kids has anxiety, but as a child treating anxiety other than maybe some supplements, if I find out, right, if I get a, a diagnosis, a confirmation that he has anxiety, is there something that I can do at six years old? I wonder if people are afraid to get some of this information because what they know about treatment is we're going to give them a pill, whether or not that's a great outcome, because for some kids it is, there's fear around that. Right, right. Sure. So the, the youngest that we've tested is two, the oldest is 98. But what I would say is I agree with you as a parent, as a grandparent now, I wouldn't want a label on my grandchild. Like, no, thank you. What we're figuring out in these labs is where there's a less than optimal range, whether it be too high or too low. Example with ADHD, let's say the the chemical is phenylethylalanine. Well, let's support that. How? Depends on what else we see in the labs. Right, right. So 
It could be nutraceuticals, it could be pharmaceuticals, it could be a combination of both. But the goal is not to be on this for a lifetime. The goal is to say we have identified where we have to support and to what level we have to support because we've got objective information. So let's do that. And then the body starts to work the way it's supposed to. We remove ourselves from that. So one of the things that I'll just give you my experience because I can speak to it. I have been on SSRIs my whole life in some way, shape or form. I, w- I went to the um, the juvenile lockdowns in Utah and, you know, the, those kind of things. And they medicated us within an inch of our life. So I've really honestly been on everything you can imagine barring Halidol. And my diagnoses are, are major depression and anxiety, as far as I know, and, and you know, ADD. When I have tried, I've tried to come off SSRIs in some way, shape or form several times. And I was off of them for a long period of time before I got pregnant and while I was pregnant. It was a disaster. And I was lucky to escape with my sobriety. And I was really trying and I was sober a long time. And so when I hear SSRIs are not made for long term, but there are ways to support these things. I I believe that what I often hear is if you eat a perfect diet, if you exercise three times a day, if you take all your vitamins and I think to myself, I'm not sure that I if I don't have any wiggle room and then I fall into that depression because I miss, you know, and I'm being I'm being hyperbolic here, but because I miss a nutraceutical or I miss a, a, a workout and then I fall into that depression, I'm not coming out of it easily. So now I'm now I'm, you know, digging myself out of this this hole or attempting to. How does a person use information with regard to like when you say let's support it? With some of these medications, with some of these nutraceuticals, are you seeing any curative effects? Are you seeing any things that allow people to pull away from a lifetime of medication? When you support people there, are you able to see real changes for people that, that don't? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, like, yeah. tell me something about that. There, there's labs in the beginning. There's labs during. There's labs, especially with someone with major depressive disorder, because it is so tough. We um, recently published with a uh, Pacific Analytics with a study that we had from a professor out of University of Hawaii with a 91.3% success rate with depression. And a lot of those people were on SSRIs for four or five years with no change before doing what we do. And a lot of times when I have somebody that comes that I've been in an SSRI for decades, as you said, they were never meant to be. They were for an acute situation, not a way to live, not a chronic situation. We don't even have the data long-term because it was never meant to be that, but it became so successful financially that it became the run with it, right? And people were being diagnosed and still are by vocabulary. You go into the doctor, you know, I just don't have the get up and go. My kids, you know, I don't, I used to get excited. I don't want to go to their school play, to their soccer games, to their whatever. Okay, you're depressed. Well, is it serotonin? Is it dopamine? Is it epinephrine? Is it norepinephrine? Is it one of those, two of those, three of those, four of those? We don't know because we're guessing. We shouldn't be guessing. The starting point needs to be with objective information. And then we can continue to track where we're going with that. There's never one neurotransmitter because the body's always trying to stay in that homeostasis. So it's going to borrow from everywhere. It's going to keep to keep the show for Ashley moving. It's going to keep borrowing. So now we've got these imbalances all over the place, not just in one area. So it, it's changing. 
And that's the part, it, it is a fluid situation. So we've got to continue with that. And that's the part where I said, when you're teaching someone, especially who's young, this is how your body feels when it's in balance and it's, there's homeostasis there. And this is how your body feels when there's not. They can now say, I'm not good right now. I think I need to retest, see what's going on. Because those levels do change. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really hard thing to have struggled with something. You know, again, I, I'm not, I don't have bipolar. I don't have, some of these things are much more fluid and I'm struggling with depression, anxiety, which frankly are kind of run of the mill at this stage in the game. And yet, I mean, most psychiatrists that I work with, they're like, well, what do you think? What do you think? And luckily I've been in doing this a long time. I have real opinions about what's going on, but I mean, it's still an opinion and it's, we're still turning it up, turning it down, playing with the volume. And sometimes the volume's high and, you know, there's all sorts of things that are, that are in flux that are happening. And then this next phase of life, as I, as I get into my forties and I I don't know what the hormonal balance will change. That's where I was going to go. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I don't know what that's going to look like. And it's all feels very, I feel like an experiment, but I don't have another option because this is the only one that I've ever known to help me stabilize. Really, because we've advanced this so far, looking into your own unique personal, you know, DNA is really, is really the game changer for people. Because, you know, it's, we relish the fact that there's 7.5 billion people on earth and we're all different. And isn't that great? On any given day, it's so good. We're all different. We don't treat anybody differently. We're treating everybody exactly the same. Sounds like you're depressed. Do this. Sounds like do this. And the, the part that makes me crazy is that science has gotten to a place where we can actually look at an individual as an individual and we fail to do that. Right back to who's going to pay for it. That's right. kind of really where we come come back to. Do you notice a difference in the expression of genes with people who have more exposure to things like environmental toxins, if you will, that they are more fragile and that people who have more inflammation are more susceptible to any of this stuff? Is there a relation? Absolutely. Um, Inflammatory markers are um, one of the areas that we look at. And as we go over, whether it be me or one of our other doctors go over those markers, we could know nothing about the individual. And they're like, I don't believe this. This is so spot on. You know, why I continue to get this, why I get that, why every bacteria or virus seems to be like, hey, pick me. It's all of those pieces. As I said, it's a cascade. It's all of those things. Where is our body weak? You mentioned there's a gene for glass half full thinking or mm-hmm. glass half yeah. empty. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit of, about that? That I was very curious about how that works. Sure. So um, it's like clinical correlations, things that we see with people with the specific markers. So GAD1 gene, you know, go through life with the glass half empty and dysphoria. I mean, just like there's no love of life kind of thing. We can even see physically spasticity with those same markers. So really, yeah, really interesting. And when go over this with people, there's some people that cry. Yeah, I bet. And it's a, a cry of relief. Like, I'm not air quotes crazy. This is really what's going on in my body that creates me to think this way, to be this way. I'm like, yeah, this is boom. This is you like, whoa. And then the family all of a sudden sees that support in a very different way. They're not trying to act out. They're not trying to ruin every holiday. All of a sudden there's like, there's reasons for this. And to me, anything in life, it's like, if I can understand the theory behind it, I'm willing to keep on going to understand, okay, let's see what we can figure out. Right. But it starts with understanding the theory behind it. That family now goes, I get it. 
And sometimes they start looking at themselves like, hmm, okay, Maybe I see the same stuff here. in myself yeah. here, you know, and, and do I want to tackle that? The whole premise behind this, Ashley, is to empower people. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. we don't have to sit in it and say, well, this is me. This is me. This is you. But with epigenetics, we can change the expression of those genes. My gosh, can you think of anything that could be more powerful to you? No. If you feel good here and here, life is different. I saw on your testing that you guys have, you do 85 biomarkers, basically triggers of information. And a lot of them are ones that we look at for mental health and addiction. And and one of my biggest gripes and I think you have the same one, um, but feel free to to disagree, is that we separate mental health and substance use disorder. It drives me batty. And I always say, I personally have never met a person with substance use disorder who wasn't at minimum struggling with depression and anxiety as a result of their substance use disorder. So even if it was situational, I've literally never met. People do talk about this unicorn of a person who has substance use disorder, but no mental health stuff. Have you met them? No, it doesn't exist. Oh, it so, doesn't exist. No, okay, no, doesn't exist. no I've, met the pe- I've met the people who say, no, it's this way because okay. they have a facility that has license for this. So that's why it's that. No, no. Okay. Just making sure. No, no, no. They do not exist. They don't exist. Okay, good. So so since they don't exist, right? Great. Okay. So glad I'm not crazy there. I'm like, I've never met this person. Um, (laughs) Why do we do it? And how do we get people to see mental health and substance use disorder as the same thing? Because we are in a place in society where we're willing to talk about mental health. We are willing. Everybody's in wellness, mental wellness, mental health, mental, whatever. Oh, my mental illness. People are willing to talk about it, but substance use disorder is being pulled out of that conversation and still kept in the corner where it's always been. And it's part of the conversation because it is, it's a pit stop on the road, right? It's, it's, it's a reaction. It's an attempt to cope with the mental health stuff. How do we get people to see that they're, they're not any different, even with these biomarkers? Well, keep on having the conversations that you're having, that I'm having, that we're having together. It makes so much sense. You know, when someone's willing to say, hey, this is all under the same umbrella. And then politically to be taking action, you know, we go to the state, we go to the Capitol quarterly at least and have these conversations to get legislators to realize this is all the same umbrella. You know, this is all the same thing. No one is going, as I said in the beginning, you're reaching outside of yourself to fix something inside. There's an imbalance in there. Game opener, at least anxiety and depression, you know, and move move on from there. And even if that unicorn that doesn't exist, even if it existed as a result, let's just use alcohol. As a result of using alcohol, you will have anxiety as you're doing it. The next day, you will have depression as a result of doing that. And now let's continue doing that. And we live the life of a roller coaster, which is exactly what you're experiencing. It's all hand in hand. And I think even in the TED talk, I said that. I said, I bring up data about mental health. I'm like, well, if I'm here to talk about addiction, why am I talking about mental health? That's where it starts. Self-medicating is where it starts. When you're talking to, like when you're working with little kids, like the two-year-olds or, or some of the teens and they're not, in, you know, in my scenario, they, they, have, they have the tools or the, or the ability to get the tools. Can you give us an example of, a, a, you know, some sort of vignette of a person that 
you have worked with where a young person before things were off the rails. Can you give us an example of like what it looked like the road to success for one or two people looked like? Sure. sure. So one of my happiest stories that always brings a smile, and I use this as a case study at the International Society in Abu Dhabi last year presented this case because it's so like, guys, get this, get this. So child was six years old, already kicked out of several schools, adopted, foster parents adopt the child. Child was born neonatal abstinence syndrome, addicted, coded three times before out of the hospital, like rough road from the beginning. She hit this place, this planet earth, right? Rough road. Now she's in school. She's having difficulty with the other kids. She's having difficulty learning. She's also part of a family where there's another adopted child and there's two biological children. So the other kids are like, come on, like this is getting rough at home. Parents reach out. We do the protocol. At the end of the year, she actually got the character award for school. How did this kid's life change? Her life changed, but everybody around her, from the kids in her class to her siblings, were like, they got to see the changes that are possible. That's how this stuff becomes so impactful because it's beyond just the talking about it. You got to see through the school year, this kid change, and then she's rewarded at the end. And and all of the people in her life that saw that are like, this is possible. What were some of the things that you did for her? Um, within her protocol, I mean, her markers, she had, um, dopamine, she had glutamate, she had in, uh, I don't remember all the particulars. She had the genetic biomarkers obviously being handed down, you know, from, from a mom and dad. So she, she was a time bomb, you know, and had their parents not been progressive enough to say, we need to change this now, because what happens in a kid that's six years old, you're going to double down on those habits. If I'm bad all the time, let me show you how bad I am. And this is how a kid goes down the road of out of control and through no fault of their own winds up in the same place that her bio mom did at that age, because we've just watched it happen. Did you guys employ like nutraceuticals or was it a pharmacological? Nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals. And then some, you know, really got to know the kid and said, okay, I think what would be really powerful here is to have something in your family be something of her own. How about maybe she likes music, maybe keyboard lessons, something that she comes home with that she got to do today that's different than everybody else. And let me show you how good I did. Last time I saw her, she was playing for me, like, you know, doing the back, hey, look at how good I am, you know, but it made her feel good about herself. Had her physiology not changed she would not have been able to sit there and do that. It wasn't going to happen. Have you had the kids where it's extremely difficult to change any of their food stuff? So I'm thinking like, oh, with these young kids, you probably have a nutrition plan, right? Yeah. And sometimes it is difficult. Sometimes when you're working with a young person, the family members can be just as difficult. And I say that because I know you know with that smile you just gave me. So you're now doing battle with them too, because they want to be the gatekeepers and everything else. Like, then don't, don't do this with me. Don't spend the money. Very, very honestly, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. I can tell you what to do, but if you're not going to do it, don't bother. You know, my child won't do this. My child won't do that. Well, let's figure it out. My child won't swallow a capsule. Let's open the capsule and let's put it in something they like. They don't like anything. Well, let's play a game. Let's make believe it's celebrity chef and let's get out some yogurt and let's put it in there. And then let's set, let them win the contest by putting sprinkles on and whipped cream. And when you go to the store, let them pick it out. I'm like, be the parent. 
use child psychology, you know? So it can be difficult, you know, but, but it can, it can be done. It can be done. What's the typical, like you, you mentioned, you have a program. Mm -hmm. What is, um, obviously there's the, the testing. Can you tell me about the program? Right. So we do it one of two ways. Either we'll do the 85 biomarkers, the lab come up with the biomarker evaluation report, 31 page report that goes over each one of those biomarkers, what they mean. We go over in a very extensive conversation like we're having here on each one of those biomarkers. So you understand it. We create the protocol. Here's why. Here's the phases of it. Here's how to do it. Do it on your own or do all of that. And then if you want to work with us, you can work with us over a six month period of time. People choose either, you know, whatever is most realistic in their life or they're already working with somebody. They already are in a program, an at-home program. They already have therapists that they're using. Keep doing it. Don't change it. You know, th that that program's doing the heavy lifting. You know, they're they're dealing with the all the psychosocial part of what we're doing. We're adding, we're adding the physiology. So if you're already doing that, keep doing it. Just add the physiology piece to it. Do you ever see people who are doing things, maybe they're taking vitamins, they're taking vitamins and they're eating really well, but it turns out that their genetics, they shouldn't be eating broccoli or like it, there's a real surprise as to what works for them because it would be considered in healthy for most of the population or without this information? Sure. And there's some people that may have trouble absorbing. You know, you could be eating a perfect diet and you have a problem absorbing. We're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. Or you could have an adverse reaction to a specific food. And, and that's like, here's what we need to get more of. We have to figure it out. We have to go a different way with you. So absolutely. Yeah. How do you handle privacy around the genetic information? One of the things that m one of my concerns with doing, you know, some of the bigger genetic testing, which I know lots of people have, is concerns around who's owning that information, what they're doing with it over the long term. What do you guys, what, what's your sure, stance we, on that? We have everybody check off the box of you do not want anything to be done with your information. It's to be between you me and God. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> and especially because we also work in the criminal justice space. So that comes up. That question is definitely more frequent with that group of, um, but I'll tell you one thing across the board, judges love to see this because they have said, you've made my job easier. I now have a reason of why I am saying what I'm saying, and it's backed with objective information and data points. I feel good about what I'm saying instead of like, oh, I don't know which way to go with this. You know, and, and everybody comes out a winner if somebody gets help during the situation, you know, regardless of what your politics are or anything else in today's environment, that doesn't even matter. Everybody winds up more of a winner if we get people in better mental health. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and ultimately, can we say that addiction is a, is it a gene or is it a grouping of genes? Grouping. Yeah. Grouping. It's not, okay. it's, it's not just one. It's how all of what we've got going on in, a, in that individual interact with them. Okay. So okay. it's that cascade of what this is doing to this and what it's doing to that. Even earlier, we talked about inflammation. Well, specific markers, are they creating neuroinflammation in these mood biomarkers that we have? Yes, that's what we're seeing. So it's, it's all a cascade. 
Do you see any different biomarkers for process addictions like gambling, sex addiction, et cetera, than, than chemical addictions? No, no. And, and oftentimes people that go addiction swapping, like, you know, California sober, you know, I'm going to, I'm not drinking, so oh, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smoke a big fatty. Yeah, it, it's it, it's the same thing. You're just changing, you know, and sex addiction, same thing. You know, oftentimes we'll see more in the process addiction. Somebody with a sex addiction will be more likely to be a gambler than because they found their process addiction is their happy place versus a substance. But no, it's the addiction is the addiction, be it process or or substance. Is there any? So I have anecdata uh, on how people, what I've seen in terms of the personalities of people who turn out to be meth users, turn out to be, you know, like there's a, it, it's nothing I've studied. I just have seen the who comes out of these situations, right? Is there anything in the uh, genetics that helps dictate? what the drug of choice is going to be? Not really. It's more of at what age in their timeline they met up with whatever the addiction was and what it did for them at that point, because that becomes their go-to. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then swapping can happen as they go and become, you know, now I'm old enough to get into a casino or, you know, whatever the case may be. So like, because one of the things I've seen is people who have ADD or ADHD, they're going to really like the uppers. They're going to really go for it because it's a calming effect where others, they don't want anything to do with that. So do you... Can so ADHD. You... Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen more with sex addiction with ADD, ADHD, that more of that spike as a correlation. Not that I can say more than that yet, but I see more ADHD with that particular process addiction. For people who, you know, I notice I'm a novelty seeker and, you know, dopamine is, uh, there's a great book. You've probably heard Dopamine Nation. Yep. I interviewed her. She was on the podcast. And, and are there things to increase dopamine that are nutraceutical based or pharmacological based other than kind of retraining your brain on how to release it. Yeah. In both nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals. Yes. Yeah. To increase, yeah, to increase mm -hmm. the production. Mm -hmm. it, does it give you dopamine or is it increase production? And the goal is to increase production. Right. Right. On your, on your own. Yep. Yeah. All of it. That's the goal of all of it to support the body in what it needs to start making. And then we get out of the way and let's see if this is going to be able to do it on its own. That's the goal, not to forever be doing this, but let's support the body in what it needs. And that's why we look at each one of those biochemical pathways to get through each step. What do we need to happen correctly to get there? Do you work with families? So you mentioned that you have worked with people who are in active addiction. Mm -hmm. Do you so do parents call you with their teenager and and mm -hmm. and do you find that they're that teenagers or young adults are cooperative when they are in active addiction at all with this process? It depends on the individual 50-50. Yeah, 50-50. Yeah. Yeah. And then a lot of times I do see the behavior of the parent helping or not helping, what that end result looks like. Yeah. That's where the cognitive behavioral therapy comes into play. How to, how absolutely, to, you know, absolutely. Is there anything that, you know, people who have, do you see people who have a lot of information about their mental health or, or like people who have a long list of diagnoses and then you do the biomarkers and you do the tests and it's totally off or is, it, is there information that you get that helps dispel certain diagnoses? 
Yeah, I think maybe say dispel certain diagnoses would be a good way to do it because I'm going to say, here's where we want to be with this particular chemical. Here's where we are. The clinical correlation, the behavior we would see with is this, you know, and then people can say for themselves, so I am or I am not XYZ, whatever the diagnosis was. And again, if we support that, the goal is to change that level. And when you look at how all these pharmaceuticals that became the go-to of choice came about was because we started diagnosing everybody, be it right or wrong. We started diagnosing everybody with that, and then they just took off on their own. I can't tell me you how many times somebody has been on an SSRI for decades and do their labs and their serotonin is in the tank. I'm like, because that was never the problem. But because you were diagnosed using vocabulary, your walk away was, I'm depressed. It was never going to work for you, and it didn't. So your kidneys, your bladder, your liver has been processing this stuff for 20-something years to no avail. If it worked, I'd say, well, you know what? It's the cost of business. Okay, totally. We have to keep doing it. So what are the how can people work with you? What's the, you know, someone wants to go check this out, and they want to, I want to go and, and purchase. How do I start? So first thing would be go to the website, Wired for Addiction, all spelled out, wiredforaddiction.com. You know, take a look at everything that's in there, how people come to us. Us, you know, directly, as I said, or they're working with a facility, they want to add this on, or they're in the criminal justice space, whatever it is, whatever resonates with you. We even offer to talk with somebody for 15 minutes with one of our clinicians to say, what are you doing? What's gone on so far? What's helped? What hasn't helped? Have you looked at any of the, you know, physiology parts of it? And then decide what works for you. You're already in a program. Keep there. Don't stop doing that. Just add the physiology piece. So just get the lab part and the protocol and go from there. You know, keep on doing what you're already doing. If you're on no man's land and you're on your own island and you don't want to go to a program or you can't for whatever reason, then if you want, do the six month with us. But if you're already working somewhere, keep doing it. Don't stop. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Just add this piece. Perfect. Well, I'm so grateful to you for what you're doing. We really need this technology and innovation in our space and lots of conversation around, you know, being able to take control of our health and have, you know, real information around this, this problem. So I'm super, super grateful. And oh, thank, thank you. you. And thank you for the work that you do and continue these conversations. And, you know, don't stop because that's how people are going to put the pieces together of like all this is interrelated and we have to look at the big picture of it. So thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yes. Wiredforaddiction.com. Go check out what is available and let's all get tested. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. I feel like I want to get tested. Yeah. Do you think I have addiction? (laughs) What if it came? Oh my God. What if it came back is not plot? You are not the father. What if I was not the father? Whoa. That would, that would be. Dude, what if I came back? Not what would you do with that? What would you even do with that? Immediately (laughs) drink. My body has kicked it out. It just kicked uh, it right pretty out. Pretty sure there was a <laughs> lifelong error made here. Oh my god, that would Guys, straight. Check There's your nose. Movie. Check it. Yeah. Check. It's it's not even there anymore. Have you seen my genome? There's a couple ways I could play it. One would be I'm such an addict, right? That I didn't even need the gene. <laughs> I skipped it. That could like that's one avenue for this, right? Okay, you manifested and then an, it. I manifested it. Another is I cured it. Oh yeah, right. 
Mm -hmm. right? Mm Because I mean, like plausible deniability, I don't have the testing from back in the day. You've been sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber and Mm -hmm. that cured it somehow. I cured it. So there's that. I don't know. That would be real. That would really mess with the old. But I would also feel better about my children and be like, well, genetically, maybe they're less. It's a coin flip now. It's a coin flip. Mm, Yeah, I'm still. I don't know. What if yours told you you were? Ooh. Would you do anything differently? That's a really good question. He is very prone to butt plugs. I mean, what? I was what just is, thinking, I mean, sorry, grown, sorry, that was, I did not, plugs yeah, oh, that's, sorry, I was thinking of the sex, the process addictions, I went process addiction, <laughs> sex addiction, butt plugs, and I was just laughing, thinking of, like, if it had a little icon, you know, <laughs> and it said, like, proclivity uh, sorry i went like all the way down as someone who, you... who mentally skips a lot of steps in conversation i understand the impulse and boy i was left in the dust left in the dust yeah yeah, yeah. you can imagine what me looking at youtube is like it's like yeah. i start out researching something about the human genome and next thing i know i'm on you know pole dancing contests in the ukraine I it's like, feel exactly it's the same way, though, though. I think that's just being a high novelty person. Okay, good. Because you know? I feel like, the why, same why? way. What's wrong? How did I get over here? Someone make me stop. And that's what I, I feel like I want to explain to people sometimes why I'm there? watching, why I'm watching what yeah. I'm watching. 100%. Like, I, I picture them walking in the room and being like, I, I, I saw mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> this is athletic. really douchey. This is so douchey. I know. I know. It is. It's so douchey. I don't know why I watched. I don't. I watched the whole thing. I did watch the whole thing. I, did, I don't know. I, did. I don't know. I don't I know why. I don't know why. I, I felt did. that it's way. Seventeen I've, minutes. I, I I made it to the end. Yeah, I watched. I was on Netflix and I watched. You remember that guy who killed his whole family? I know that's it's hard to narrow that down. But anyway, I was watching this show and that is exactly how I felt. I watched the whole thing. Now, to be clear, this was a news story. So I knew Mm. how the story ended. I knew what happened. (laughs) I read the news story, but I felt compelled to watch the documentary. And worse off, I had a senior moment. That's just what I'm going to call it right now. Because when I finished it, I realized I had watched it before. <laughs> oh, it was the last line. That's what that's what reminded me. Chogged the old memory. I was like, I mean, man, I... I feel like I've seen this before. <laughs> Why am I watching this? But I didn't turn it off. I didn't turn it off. Well, so... you do have a certain proclivity. I, yeah. You know, we the, to behind Not the curtain a little books. bit. Behind the curtain a little bit is that some of our process <laughs> in booking guests is there's you know it's come some from me, some from you, some from somewhere else in the ether as far as where we get our guests. And mm-hmm. there was a stretch where we had about fifteen guest recommendations from Ashley that were murder related in some way. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hello. And I that has its place on the show. It does. Certainly. It does have its place. We need to Certainly. talk. Is there, but we can't I, do 15 is, in a row. Not in a row. <laughs> Don't make it weird. But also, is there a murder gene? Mm, we should have asked her. If okay, can I just say that if oh, I had boy. a murder, if I had a murder gene that came out, I would tell uh, tell my husband. 
Yeah, as a threat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. <laughs> Stole like, it over bam. his head. No, I just like let him know casually. Yeah, like, I think I, casually is the way to do that. Genetically. Yeah, I mean, like, I haven't done it yet. Emotionally, but like genetically. But like when I do look at you while you're asleep, things cross my mind. Genetically. Genetically, I, it would require epigenetics for it to happen. So right. you know, don't push me. <laughs> Uh, just just saying don't push me but also but also think about mother's day a little more mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. (laughs) my poor husband he's wonderful it's hard to it's hard to be married to me he got he got beat up by me last night i had a dream so i tend to have dreams i wonder if this is genetic i tend to have dreams that occur in the same place over and over and over that's very weird i have a couple that yeah i've dissected those with my therapist and there's this one that occurs in this same house and it's very very haunted house but the room that i sleep in is the ghosts and zombies don't come into that room for whatever Mm, reason and but if you go out in the middle it's not haunted during the day but if you go out into the rest of the house at night there are you know whatever creepy crawlers situations and so in this dream I had last night, for whatever reason, I went out, <laughs> dumbass, don't into do that. the like, like, I don't know. I've been here before. I've had this dream before. Mm. So I go out into the hallway and there's some sort of apparition. And but it felt more like a lot of the time the apparitions are ghost. Like you mm. could put your hand through them kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But not this one. And so this one starts chasing me back to the bedroom. That's usually a safe place. Right. Uh-huh. Well, here's where it gets weird. <laughs> here's oh, <what>? where <laughs> here's where reality met my dream. <laughs> so when it chased me back into the room and I hopped back into the bed in the dream, I hopped into the right side of the bed in the dream. Mm. Okay. If you're laying in the bed on the right side, but I sleep in real life on the left side of the bed and mm. my husband sleeps on the right side of the bed. So as this creature came into the room and came up to the side of Came up to the side of the bed. Yeah. And in my dream, I'm on the right side and the creature's coming to me, right? Coming in on the right. I put my feet out. (laughs) I start kicking this bitch down. (laughs) Right? I'm taking this. I'm not not going without a fight. So I start kicking the shit out of this this apparition. Well, I awaken because I'm screaming. (laughs) But also so is my husband because I am kicking the shit out of my husband last night. And he's yelling. This poor guy. He's like, what is wrong with you? 15 fucking years and this chick is just nuts. Oh my God. Yeah. So I this and this morning I was like, hey, did I hurt you? Did I hurt you last night? And he's like, yeah, you did. You were kicking me. I'm like, I'm really sorry. But also you have to understand. I was on the right side of the bed in the dream and there was an apparition. So anyway, hopefully that's not genetic. I, you know, but you know, I feel comforted by is that I feel like you, you know, you held your own against the apparition, right? And that's what's important. (laughs) Thank you. So all that is to say that I would like to know how I can better support my genetics because (laughs) I think they are deeply flawed. Well, it's all very hope producing for me. I hope that people will check out Dr. Higgins outside of this podcast and dig more into the work that she's doing because it's there's a lot of great stuff out 
out there. And I mean, just being able to check out, you know, what is available to you and what options you might have is a cool thing. So um, this week, we are rooting for you, as we always are. Maybe we're rooting for you in like a science-backed way this week. I feel like it should be like a little bit different flavor of rooting for people each week. You know what I mean? <laughs> a nutraceutical flavor. A nutri- this is a nutraceutical rooting for you this week is what I've got oh, for you. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with this week? Yes. Go check out wiredforaddiction.com. Go check out Dr. Evelyn Higgins' TED Talk. Super amazing. And please, please, please reach out to us if you need guidance or if there's any way that we can be helpful. We are rooting for you. And as always, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.